Well, I'm going to tell you why we should arise, why our soul should arise and give praise to God and cast off all fears. And here's the reason. God's effectual call and regeneration enables particular sinners like you and me to respond to the outward call of the gospel, the invitation to come to Christ, to respond in repentance and faith, and at last come into his kingdom. Amen? Let's read about that from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now God's word for God's people. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Thus far the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let us pray. God, our Father, as we come to this passage of Scripture, first we give thanks. We are amazed that you would show mercy, that you would demonstrate love, that you would act graciously towards those of us who were dead in our sin. But you have. And not only that, you have raised us up by giving us new life in Christ, not only in the present day, but in the day yet to come. And not only that, but you have created us in Christ to be your masterpieces, masterpieces of your grace for your glory. And so, Father, we would pray that you would show us that all of this is your work and especially the work of making us alive in Christ that you have done prior to any, any work that we might do towards salvation. And we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have family, friends that are unconverted. We have sought to witness to them over the years, both in word and deed. That is how we live our life before them. They respect our deeply held beliefs, but it appears to us that they have been thus far unaffected 
by our witness of Christ in their lives. For they have not responded to the gospel in repentance and faith. You may have similar experiences, friends, maybe even family members, colleagues at work, fellow students at school or university, neighbors that are unconverted, and it appears thus far the gospel invitation has not affected them to respond in repentance and faith. But why do some people respond to the gospel offer in repentance and faith and others, we might even say many, do not? So that's one question. The second question is this, and maybe more the, the more important question for our consideration today. What is determinative in one being saved? An important distinction has to be made to answer both of these questions, and in particular the second question I asked. And here's the distinction. While one's step of faith, that is one believing in Christ, one's faith response is necessary, it is not determinative of one entering the kingdom of heaven. What is determinative is God's work of effectually calling them and regeneration. To put it another way, God acts and sinners respond. And today's message is exploring this distinction. It's looking at God's prior work of effectual calling and regeneration. And we're, in one respect, we're using these terms to mean the same thing. God giving new life, God enabling us to understand the gospel, to understand our sin, to understand that Jesus is not only the answer to our sin problem, but he's the Savior and the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And then to turn to him and turn away from sin, to turn to him in repentance and faith. So we'll be looking at this very critical aspect of salvation today. God acts first. Sinners respond. God's work of effectual calling and regeneration is determinative, though our step of faith is necessary to salvation. And we'll be looking at ability lost, ability restored, and thirdly, effectually called. You'll see these three points on the outline in your bulletin. First, Paul tells us what has been lost. Look at verse 1. Mankind walks or lives following the course of this world. Further, the apostle says in verse 3, humanity is by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's a universal thing. By nature, universally, mankind is dead in sin. And exactly what was lost is exactly what was lost as we trace redemptive history all the way back to Adam in the garden. 
In Genesis 3, Adam lost something there, very significant. You may recall the first sermon in this series was a sermon where we looked at God creating Adam in the state of innocence, and in so doing, Adam had both the liberty and the ability to not sin and to sin. He was a free moral agent, as theologians like to put it. And then Adam, in Genesis chapter 3, sinned, and sin came into the world, and sin was passed down to Adam's posterity. And what was lost? Adam lost the ability to do that which was pleasing to God. And the state of nature, or the natural state of mankind, man now being not able not to sin. And we see this in passages like Romans chapter 5, which is a, a very important passage with regards to our understanding of the doctrine of original sin. Therefore, just as sin came into the world, Paul says in Romans 5, 12 through 14, through the one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But through Adam, sin and death entered into the world. And because of Adam's sin, we are now born, that original sin, born with a sin nature, born without the ability to not sin. I think I said that right. What was lost has a direct bearing on the sermon two weeks ago. And if you recall the sermon two weeks ago, we, we considered the outward call of the gospel that is to be freely offered to all, to everyone we, we encounter. It doesn't matter if we think they may be saved or not saved. I'm to declare the gospel on Sunday morning and throughout the week to all, the free offer of the gospel. We've looked particularly at Romans 10, 13 through 17, and verse 17, where Paul says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. This section of Romans, Romans 10, so beautifully teaches this, this part of, at least almost uh, pre-order of salvation aspect of the outward call of the gospel going forth from God's people. It is to be universally, universally and indiscriminately applied. It is our responsibility, but more it is our privilege to have a part to play in the salvation of sinners, to declare the good news of Jesus to all. Now, in light of Romans 10, what we studied two weeks ago, and in light of today's passage, especially Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we need to understand this. The free offer of the gospel, universally applied, falls upon those who are by nature universally lacking the ability to respond. That's the import of this relationship between the outward call and 
God's work of effectual calling and regeneration. When we declare the gospel, we are declaring the gospel unless someone is already converted to someone who lacks the ability to not sin, who lacks the ability to hear the words of life, who lacks the ability to respond in repentance and faith to that glorious news that Christ forgives and saves. The hearts of those to whom the outward call is applied, unless they're already converted, the hearts of the natural man would be like those three soils in the parable of the sower. You can find that parable in Matthew 13, Mark 4, and Luke 8. You may remember the first soil is that hard pack, like a hard pack pathway. The second soil is the rocky soil, and the third soil is that thorn-infested soil, that though the seed falls on these types of soils and may even have some effect, yet at the end there's no harvest. Those three soils have the same result, no harvest, and they reflect the unconverted who lacks the ability to respond in repentance and faith to the sowing of the gospel message. Ability lost. That's the condition of those three soils in the parable. When we freely proclaim the good news of the gospel to all from the pulpit, over a cup of coffee, over the fence in the backyard, in the break room at work, at school, there is, and this is important, there is always a response. Always. When we preach the gospel, for example, using those precious words that Jesus himself declared in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, where he said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When we preach the gospel, for example, using Jesus' own words, will you come to Jesus? <laughs> will you turn from your sin and flee to Christ and embrace him and find that glorious rest for your soul. When we preach that, there will be a response. It is our genuine desire that when we preach like that, when we declare the gospel like that to someone, that they will respond and repent of their sins and flee to Christ in faith. And at last come into the kingdom. That's my desire. Is it yours? I'm sure it is. But we shouldn't be surprised when people don't respond that way. If the person to whom we preach is unconverted, their heart is hard. Some will listen politely even thank us for having concern for their eternal souls. 
and yet they will decline the offer and they will not turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. But that's a response, isn't it? Isn't it? There may be others who would say, hey, wait a minute, buddy. <laughs> that's your what? Religion. That's your faith. I prefer this philosophy. That's a response, isn't it? Rejecting for another philosophy. And then there are those that respond with hostility and anger. They get in your face. And they say, what are you, what are you saying? I'm a sinner in need of a savior. How dare you? But that's a response. We should not be surprised when people respond in these ways, and there are other ways that people respond to the gospel. In the words, but we, we should also be asking the question. Why do so many people not respond in repentance and faith? In the words of the hymn, How Sweet and Awesome Is This Place, we, we may be asking the same question. Why do thousands make a wretched, wretched choice and rather starve than come? When we contemplate the question, why do some not respond in repentance and faith to the gospel, we should be asking, why? Why would they refuse such a great offer and choose to rather starve than come? And Paul tells us why right here in this passage that we have been looking at in Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3. By nature, man lacks the ability to respond rightly to the gospel message. And here's the point. If they are to be saved, just as what was necessary for our own salvation, God must act first and restore that ability for the sinner to turn from his or her sin and repent and turn to Christ in faith. So let me, let me just make a further distinction. I, I want to distinguish between two theological perspectives. One theological perspective, that is Arminianism, teaches that man must act first in salvation, and God responds... This system therefore teaches that man's step of faith, man's action, is determinative and views God's response as a necessary response, but merely necessary. So man acts first and God responds. That's a simple way to understand the very core issues of the theological system known as Arminianism. Let me look at it, let's look at it this way. Think about a cruise ship at sea. A person falls overboard and he finds all matter of, you know, those life rings that you see at the swimming pool out there. They've been provided for all. And so 
he's got to do something or he is going to drown. And what he does is going to determine if he lives or dies. And so what does he do? The idea is that, that he would act and that he would reach out and that he would grab one of those life rings. And then when he grabs one of those life rings, hopefully uh, there's a rope attached to it and somebody on the ship reels him in and brings him up on the deck. And so his reaching for that life ring is determinative while the person on the deck of the ship reeling him in was, was necessary. Now, this analogy is limited. I think you understand that. But the point that I'm trying to make is the sinner acts first to decide. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have asked Jesus into my heart. And then the idea is that God responds to that by regenerating that person, giving them a new life. And what's even more pr problematic, and that's problematic in and of itself, but it's based on something as problematic, if not more, is the view of sin. In order to make sense out of, or to be logical in this system of, this, in this theological system, you have to view sin as not being pervasive and total, total depravity, as we would say, but that the person is merely sick in sin, and he's not sick enough to where he can at least reach out and do something to save himself. So it's a, def it's a deficient, if not defective, view of sin. But now let's, and by the way, we reject this theological system. We're not saying the people that embrace it aren't believers, but we reject this understanding of the Bible. But now let's look at our theological perspective known as Calvinism or Reformed and Covenantal Theology and it's based on the fact that God must act first and man responds. God's work of effectual calling and regeneration is determinative though man's response of faith is necessary. So going back to the cruise ship analogy as limited as it is so the person overboard actually is lifeless, drowned, lying on the bottom. That person is dead. And there's no hope of this person doing anything that is going to improve a situation that is going to rescue him or resuscitate him. He needs a rescuer to do everything for him or her. That is determinative for being rescued. <laughs> and so the rescuer in this scenario has his great grappling hooks that he throws over and drags the bottom and hooks that lifeless body and yanks him up onto the deck and literally breathes new life into that formerly lifeless dead person. And do you see the difference on the one, what, what is determinative is man's action. On the latter, what is determinative, and I believe the correct understanding, is God's action. This, this latter scenario, the, the guy dead on the bottom of the sea being rescued, reflects the teaching of Scripture that by nature mankind is spiritually dead. And if God does nothing, 
they remain lifeless in their watery grave. But thankfully, God acts. He acts first. He acts prior to anything man might do regarding salvation. He acts determinatively. Our only hope of salvation is that regeneration, God restoring the ability, precedes faith, man responding in repentance and faith. So secondly, let's look at and what Paul tells us in verses 4 through 5, how, how does God act? What does he restore in certain sinners, those whom, he has, those whom he has chosen from the very foundations of before the beginnings of the world? Notice what he says in verses 1 through 3. What he says in verses 1 through 3 actually anticipates verses 4 through 5. He says in verses 1 through 3, you were dead. He also says, you once walked, and further, we all once lived, and we were by nature children of wrath. Then in verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, all past tense, something dramatic, something profound, something wonderful, something glorious has happened. And what is it? This, this wonderful transformation, this this incredible change that has taken place is signaled by one little conjunction at the beginning of verse 4, but. That, that, that little word denotes that the state of lostness, that, that ability that has been lost is now in the rearview mirror. The state of nature has been overturned by the redeeming work of Christ. You may remember the God story painting from David Arms, that first panel, the state of innocence, the second panel, the state of nature, the fall, the third panel, the, the state of redemption, the state of grace. Paul says something dramatic has changed. And Paul emphasizes what brings about this dramatic change in this center. He speaks of God's mercy, his love, his grace. When we were incapable of doing anything, when we were literally so spiritually lifeless, it was as if we were on the bottom of the ocean, drowned, dead, lifeless. And yet God worked, even when we were dead in our trespasses, verse 5. He acted in showing particular ill-deserving sinners mercy, to alleviate their miserable estate, losing the ability to respond in repentance and faith that we might come into the kingdom of God. He alleviates that by doing the most loving thing in the most loving way by making us alive in Christ. And all of this he does, not because we deserve it, but just out of his grace and favor. Exactly what does Paul mean in verse 5 when he says he made us alive? It really points to regeneration. God giving certain sinners new spiritual life, a new heart, we often say. With that new heart, that new nature, that sinner now has the ability to respond to the gospel in repentance and faith. They have new spiritual life. 
Kevin read a passage from Ezekiel 36, and there's some other passages I will read that, that really point to this. Just Ezekiel 36, verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from you, from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. That's, that's regeneration. John 6, 65, and he said, that is Jesus, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father, referring to regeneration, effectual calling. Acts chapter 16 and verse 14, this descriptive passage regarding Lydia in, in Paul's ministry. Verse 14 of Acts 16, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And Lydia was converted and her household. John 1, 12 through 13, but to, all, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So many stop right there. And they failed to read verse 13. But listen to verse 13 who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God, made alive in Christ. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. This, this is a very familiar passage. Nicodemus comes, and here's the passage where, where we get that, that phrase that Chuck Colson popularized, born again. Let me read this, and then I want to make a few brief comments on it. This is a central passage as we think about God's work of effectual calling and regeneration. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Now, there is much to be said about this passage. A whole sermon could be preached on this passage. I have preached a sermon on this passage, but I just want to make a few brief comments. I want to use the words of, of an old theologian, G.I. Williamson, as he reflects upon this passage. And I want to tell you the five things that he thinks are essential to our understanding about effectual calling and, and regeneration. First, this passage, John 3, 1 through 8, shows us that regeneration is prevenient. What does that mean? That it precedes any spiritual activity for salvation of man. God acts prior to anything we may do. Secondly, it's monergistic. What does that mean? Well, 
it means that regeneration is accomplished solely by God the Holy Spirit. We do not play a part in it whatsoever. It is done only by God the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, it's mysterious. You can't measure it or observe it, but you know it when it happens. Fourth, it's sovereign. It, regeneration takes place when and where the Spirit wills. Paul, or John rather uses that, that uh, phrase in verse 8, uh, the wind blows where it wishes. And then fifthly, it is effectual. Regeneration produces the result of the person having the ability to enter the kingdom of God, thereby God's call upon them is effectual. And as we think further about regeneration, effectual calling, it's this this fifth point that Williamson brings up from John 3, that regeneration is effectual. It results in someone entering the kingdom of God. And I want to end our time looking at this third point, effectual, effectually called. Paul points to, to the efficacy of God's sovereign work of regeneration in calling certain sinners to life. And we see this in verses 6 and 7, actually verse 6 through 10. I want to look first at verses 6 and 7. Here, Paul, of Ephesians 2, here Paul highlights the glorious gospel truths that those whom God makes alive, regenerates in Christ Jesus, are raised to new life today and possess eternal life in the day to come. In verses 8 through 9, Paul speaks of this glorious salvation being solely of grace and through faith in Christ. In other words, it is not because of human effort. It is solely a work of God. And then in verse 10, Paul summarizes all that he said up to this point about God's gracious work. What is the result? Look at verse 10 of Ephesians 2. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared, hand, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What Paul shows in these 10 verses of Ephesians 2 is God's work of regeneration, making sinners alive, creating them in Christ Jesus is effectual in that the intended result is achieved. A sinner gains entrance to the kingdom of heaven. A sinner becomes a masterpiece of God's grace. They are restored. One theologian that has written a whole book on the order of salvation, Anthony Hookema, defines effectual calling in this way. I think it's a good definition. He says effectual calling is that sovereign action of God through his Holy Spirit, whereby he enables the hearer of the gospel call to respond to his summons with repentance, faith, and obedience. And then he also says this, unless God changes the heart of the hearer, he or she will not respond in faith. God's work of effectual calling and regeneration is determinative of salvation. Without it, no one gets into the kingdom 
of heaven. Paul teaches the sovereign action of God in calling certain sinners in Romans 8.30. Listen to this. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And if we look at what Paul says here in Romans 8.30, we are to understand the calling to which he refers has to be effectual calling. Why? Because it, res it, re it results, in Paul's terms in Romans 8.30, in justification and ultimately glorification. God's call inwardly is effectual because God works prior to any spiritual activity of man to give new birth, which restores the sinner's ability to not sin, to hear the gospel, to respond to the gospel in repentance and faith, to embrace the gospel message preached, and at last come into the kingdom of God. The response to God's effectual call and regeneration, that is conversion, repentance, and faith, will be our topic for the next two messages in this series after our missions conference. But I want to make this implication for today. And here's the implication. Never, ever give up declaring the gospel to all, even those who you have shared the gospel with and have responded by rejecting it. Never, ever give up. I cannot say this strongly enough. Our family friends remain unconverted. Ability lost. And they are living in that lostness today. We have witnessed to them. And our intention is to continue witnessing to them. It is not only our responsibility, but it is our privilege to call sinners to Christ. It may be that God has ordained some time in the future where one or all of that family will be effectually called and will have the ability to respond to the gospel message that Renee and I and other Christians in their life had declared to them and witnessed before them and how they live, that they may come at last into the kingdom. I do not know God's will. I do not know if he has ordained that at some point they will have the ability to respond to the gospel. I don't know that well above my pay grade. But I tell you what I do know, that God has charged me and God has charged you with the responsibility and the privilege to preach the gospel, to offer the call to all over and over again, doing it in a winsome way, but doing it that God may be pleased to use that outward call from our lips as part of his inward work of effectually calling that person to respond to the gospel. Now, I know that some of you in this church 
have children and family members that are unconverted. And I know some of you in this church have raised your children to love the Lord and they have rejected it. And I know that the door is still open for God to work. Never, ever give up. If it's your friend, your children, whomever, even if they've rejected the gospel from your lips before, never, ever give up living for Jesus and speaking of Jesus in a winsome way, in a loving way before them. Who knows? Until they die, God may yet work. If any sinner is to be saved, it will be because an evangelist has declared Christ and God has done that determinative work of effectual calling in the life of a sinner. The gospel message that they have heard, it is our hope at some point may fall on the fourth type of soil in the parable of the sower that soil that had been prepared and cultivated and received the seed and it germinated and it sprouted and it grew and it produced a great harvest. The seed was sown and some of that seed fell on ground that was cultivated our great hope is God's effectual call enables particular sinners to respond to the outward call of the gospel in repentance and faith. God is in the business of cultivating hearts that there would be a great harvest of the gospel. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do commit ourselves to you as your ambassadors. Though we have failed in the responsibility and privilege that you have given us to represent you to this world, yet even in our weakness and limitations, yet, Lord, you are at work through your people declaring the good news of the gospel and so impress upon our hearts that we should never, ever give up doing that, that we would keep on preaching Christ. For we know the hope that you have chosen to work in particular sinners and effectually call them to Christ. We thank you and praise you for your saving work. In Jesus' name, amen.